Welcome to the nationally syndicated In the Oil Patch radio show with Kim Bellotto, broadcasting from the Port of Corpus Christi studios. Get more on the Port of Corpus Christi at portofcc.com. In the Oil Patch radio show will give you an inside look at the oil, gas, and energy industry and how it affects you from industry experts and government officials right here on the In the Oil Patch radio show. And now it's time for me to welcome on my guest, Gabriel Collins, who is with the Baker Institute for Public Policy. And also joining him is his colleague, Stephen Miles, who is also with the Baker Institute for Public Policy. Gabriel, welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Thank you for having me. Before we get started, tell our listeners a little bit about your past history, your your bio a little bit, because while you are with the Baker Institute for Public Policy, you're also an attorney as well. You have a few areas of expertise in the energy sector. So tell me a little bit about your background. Certainly. So my my background is a product of growing up out in the Permian Basin and being a decent enough track athlete that an East Coast school wanted to bring you out there. And it really opened up a whole new world to me. I, I had a lot of exposure to energy growing up, being from the oil patch, but some of the other aspects of things, you know, some of the international relations and the chance to learn Chinese and Russian, some of these other things that ultimately ended up being very foundational to me came out of that opportunity. I went, so so funny story right after undergraduate is I thought I was going to go live and study abroad for a year in Russia. And little did I know how expensive uh, Moscow was. So a year turned into a few months and then came back to the U.S., rapidly ended up at the U.S. Naval War College as a civilian China and Russia analyst. Did that for a couple of years, got pulled into the hedge fund world. Uh, my family still makes fun of me for the timing because I joined in June of 2008, right before the market melted down and did that for about oh. three years and then yeah. went to law school and came back down to Texas. And then a couple of years after that, ended up at the Baker Institute where I am today. And it's it's wonderful there. Stephen, give us a little bit of background on what you do for the Baker Institute and your background, please. Uh, thank you, Kim, for uh, having us on. Um, I'm fellow for Global Natural Gas and Energy Transitions. I spent about um, 35 years or so in private practice with two law firms of uh, the last 20 some odd years with uh, Baker Botts based out of the Washington, D.C. office, but really uh, around the world. And um, I headed the LNG practice, a group of about 50 lawyers or so, um, in addition to uh, some other roles. And I've been at the Baker Institute the last three years and working mostly on um, climate change and natural gas and and how the two can work together, but also uh, most recently on energy security issues. So I'm working with Gabe quite a bit. Gentlemen, both of you guys released this report or created this report for Rice University, and it's titled um, European uh, Energy at Risk of Overdependence on Unreliable Supply. And basically, the report says, why is Europe not replacing Russian pipeline gas with long-term liquefied natural gas contracts? And we're going to get into that, but there's two things that are pressing right now on my mind, I don't know if either one of you want to comment before we drill down into this great report that talks about is Europe making the same mistake. But it brings me back to when President Trump was in office and he was very vocal about Europe should not be signing specifically Germany uh, long term contracts with Russia. And it has turned out after the invasion of Ukraine, it turned out to be a big, big problem for Europe. And your report goes into detail, but I just want to allow you guys to comment if you want to. Was President Trump right? about not necessarily wanting to sign with Russia. And I, I just kind of feel like 
he was right and and they should have listened and maybe they're not listening again <laughs> but anybody either one of you want to make a comment i'll give one sentence and then i'll let gabe elaborate because i know he's trying to get the bit successive u.s presidents were right because this goes back quite a ways in yeah. repeatedly urging our friends across the pond not to uh, overly rely upon any one producer but particularly russia gabe yeah. I'm sure you correct heard. and i and I would second that this this is not something that's been restricted to any single U.S. presidential administration. The, this issue and this friction point between the U.S. and Europe literally has been around longer than I've been alive. This has been around since 1982 is when this really got started, when Reagan. there was the first big pipeline project that was geared toward bringing gas down from the Yamal Peninsula into Europe. And in the Reagan administration and some of their various leadership counterparts in Europe, you know, the Germans and others had a very, very serious set of diplomatic disputes. And basically, I think we finally ended up in the position where we realized that the Europeans were very dead set on going ahead with these pipelines. And so things moved forward. But th th this is a friction point that's not new. It's just it's really been called into stark contrast by the Ukraine war, because this is the scenario. What happened in the year leading up to the Ukraine war is what everyone had worried about for the previous 40 years, basically. The Russians slowly tightening back the taps to pressure their customers in Western Europe to adopt a diplomatic and political position akin to what they wanted. You know, I'm going to read something out of your report, and then I want to get into what you guys specifically title as the gas Grand Canyon, Europe's gas supply gap. But in your report leading up to it, what caught my attention was it says in the run-up of 2022 Russian invasion of Ukraine, Europe allowed itself to become dependent upon Russia for up to 40% of Europe's natural gas supply. This is what keeps them warm. This is their utilities. A lot of our listeners are not familiar with how how this affects them. Um, as the gathering storm brewed around UK, uh, Ukraine in autumn of 2021, Gazprom took back its deliveries of gas and left the 25 and left the 25% of Europe gas storage that it controlled empty for the winter. And then following the February 2022 invasion, Russia continued to reduce and eventually ended most all natural gas supplies. Hence to why you guys are on the show today. So let's get started with in your report, the first thing you guys mention is the gas Grand Canyon, Europe's gas supply gap. Tell me a little bit about that. I'll, I'll take a crack at this one. As you mentioned, Kim, the um, Europe was reliant upon Russia for uh, almost 40%. And that peak was uh, a year or two you know, before the, uh, the Ukraine invasion in uh, February of 2022. By the time that occurred, uh, Europe had lost over 100 billion cubic meters per year of natural gas. Uh, it was able to claw back a little bit of that with uh, conservation, some deindustrialization, which isn't your favorite way to save energy, um, some additional natural gas, uh, the, the Groningen field in, in the Netherlands, they delayed uh, closing that, um, some additional natural gas from the uh, North North Sea. But um, most of most of the, the the gap that kept the lights on, that kept the houses warm, as you said, um, Kim, really came from um, a flood of LNG that turned on a dime, mostly from the United States, 
that was a short-term spot. It just, you know, in, in the course of days and weeks, just turned and and flooded into um, uh, into European ports. Uh, that really enabled Europe to get through the rest of the winter of 2022, through the rest of 2022, and then have enough in storage for uh, the that then coming winter of 2023. Um, the surprising thing to us when we looked at the data was we thought that that year or so that that U.S. and a, some a little bit of Qatari LNG, a little bit elsewhere, most of it was U.S. 74% of all U.S. LNG exports went to Europe during that spring in particular. We thought that Europe would have spent that time then uh, securing long-term contracts, as had been recommended by a number of administrations and other independent folks. Uh, and in fact, Europe did do an excellent job in securing uh, floating LNG storage and regasification terminals so that they were able to have the receiving terminal capacity in place very quickly, something that we had focused on, others had focused on. And to their credit, a number of European countries, Germany, England, but a half dozen others as well, did a good job with that. But to our surprise, the, the gas Grand Canyon is that they didn't fill this 100 billion cubic meter gap of gas supply instead decided to just continue buying spot. And the question is why? Why did they do that? So it's not secured to a supply source. It's not secured contractually at all. There's no obligation on anyone to deliver more than maybe a month in advance. And it's not secured by any committed price. And so why would Europe have left itself so exposed? And that was what really troubled us. We we got into this through the data, not from a political agenda in any way. And and then we wanted to explore why that was. And and Gabe, maybe you can talk a little bit about some of those reasons. Certainly the the three reasons. And I, I think something that's maybe useful for the listeners to to take away at this juncture is energy security is national security. And this is something that was it was certainly that's forgotten. It was certainly forgotten in Europe, and we see that by the course of events here, but it was something that also affected many other parts of the world. And really, uh, events over the last you know 18 to 24 months here ha have really been a stark reminder that economic issues and national security issues don't exist in vacuums, that they actually overlap each other quite significantly. So with that point aside, you know, if we start to delve into the what we saw as the three core factors here, the potential hypotheses that might explain why. Hold on, Gabe. Yes. Hold on, Gabe. Hold yes. on, Gabe. Because we're going to have to take a quick break. And when we come back, I'm going to give you those three points that you need to make. But Sorry. I also want us to talk about European countries, how in between this period of time, too, they almost the, your report talks about how they caught flat footed because of the amount of investments that they were not making. And you're report shows how far down they went and in even investing in their own energy supply. Let's take a quick break. You're listening to an oil patch radio show. We'll be right back. Attention small and medium-sized business owners. Are you feeling overwhelmed with back office tasks like payroll, workers' compensation, federal regulations, safety laws, employment standards, and benefits? Don't worry, Unique HR has your back. For over 30 years, our team of qualified professionals has been providing people-centered solutions to help businesses like yours navigate the heavy burden of running a business and managing their workforce. We're the PEO with a pulse, and we are just a phone call away. Call us today at 361-852-6392. Unique HR, the partner you can 
trust. Attention small and medium-sized business owners. Are you feeling overwhelmed with back office tasks like payroll, workers' compensation, federal regulations, safety laws, employment standards, and benefits? Don't worry, Unique HR has your back. For over 30 years, our team of qualified professionals has been providing people-centered solutions to help businesses like yours navigate the heavy burden of running a business and managing their workforce. We're the PEO with a pulse, and we are just a phone call away. Call us today at 361-852-6392. Unique HR, the partner you can trust. Any business can benefit from advertising to the oil and gas industry, but it's really important to partner with a marketing company that has a proven track record with this growing industry. Shale Oil and Gas Business Magazine is the one-stop shop that'll keep you in front of the customers that you need to grow your business. So let's start growing your business in Texas. Email us, info at shalemag.com. Again, that's info at shale, S-H-A-L-E, mag, M-A-G, dot com. Or you can call us, 210-240-7188. Again, that's 210-240-7188. And we're back. You're listening to In the All Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Gabe Collins and Stephen Miles, both with the Baker Institute for Public Policy. Gabe, before the break, you were going to tell us about the three points that led Europe to this problem. Continue. Certainly. And and so th- these three points that we outline in the report are actually hypotheses that we think might explain why we've seen the course of action taken that we have in Europe. We we can also talk about some of the ways that they, through policy decisions, effectively rendered themselves more vulnerable in advance of the Ukraine war. So what I'll do, if you're okay with it, so I'll, I'll lay out those three hypotheses very quickly and some of the things we found as we explored them. And then if you'd like, we can talk about some of the foundational decisions over the last 20 years in Europe that helped set the stage for this. Please. So in terms of the three hypotheses, one thing that we have come across is certain European utilities and gas buyers, and we'll we'll leave them unnamed uh, you know, out of a sense of politeness here, took an approach that basically the market works, even though we don't have long-term contracts, we were able to still procure liquefied natural gas in the form of spot cargos. And basically moving forward during the pendency of this crisis, we'll just outbid everyone. And so if you look at what's actually happened, yes, they've done that, and they've gotten gas supplies, but there's real long-term structural consequences to this. So if you're looking within Europe itself, you see a massive increase in what energy costs. I mean, just the rough numbers we've run since the start of the war, Europeans have probably paid about $100 billion US dollars more for natural gas based on these spot purchases than they would have had they been purchasing gas at the price that it sells out of U.S. terminals for, which is typically 115% of the Henry Hub price plus $3 for liquefaction and shipping and other things and regas. And so you have that direct cost right there. This higher cost also feeds through the energy system more broadly because you use gas for generating electricity, for home heating, for industrial heat, and so forth. And so it metastasizes out. One of the things we've seen, and then this is to Stephen's point earlier, is one way that they've helped close that gas supply gap, kind of fill in the Grand Canyon a little bit, 
is a very painful and what we would argue is probably an unsustainable way. And that's actually shutting down industrial operations or curtailing them. And you can see this in the industrial gas use data, where when you look at the normal cyclicality throughout the year, over the past two years, it looks like a stair step downward in the trend. And that's something that very frankly speaking, if Europe wants to remain a global industrial and manufacturing superpower, it's just not sustainable or tenable. So that was one factor we looked at. Um, another factor, and, 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 and some of these are supported by things that we've actually heard people privately say at various events and conferences and meetings with EU officials and so forth. The some second of them out loud and some of them not very out loud. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Some are, are not, not, not very covert at all about it. Uh, the second thing is this idea that the war will be over sometime fairly soon in Ukraine and that Europe will basically be able to resume imports of low cost Russian gas through infrastructure that in many cases is already paid for, if not many times over. The problem with this is if you look at the history of how Russia wages conflict, we as Americans like wars that tend to be neat and clean at the end. You can kind of put a bow tie on it and move forward. World War II is probably the signature example. The way things work when the Russians fight is it's very different. You look at all the frozen conflicts along their borders, some of which have existed basically since the Soviet Union fell. You think of Transnistria in, in Moldova, you have a frozen conflict there. You think of the frozen conflicts in northern Georgia, you see the Russian seizure of Crimea in 2014, an invasion of parts of eastern Ukraine, and a conflict that you know, went on quietly but brutally for a full eight years there before they conducted the big invasion last year. And over and over and over, what you see is this pattern where conflict will endure and ebb and flow for years. And so if you think you're going to be able to, one, just physically resume gas flows under those conditions, that's already a fairly courageous assumption. But then if you also ask yourself, how might a transit country, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's Poland or someone else that is under active assault or something close to it by the Russians, how eager will they be to actually play a role in resuming transit across their territory for the economic convenience of folks in Western Europe that, to our discussion earlier, were willing to put themselves in such a position of vulnerability to begin with? So you have that issue. And then the third issue is the scenario we call green dream, where you look at these big renewable energy plans, which are very ambitious in Europe, and this idea that renewables can basically swap out natural gas and push it out of the system. And the there's, there's a few realities that creep in fairly quickly here and cast doubt on, on this. One is just the sheer volume of energy that would need to be replaced, even with the very aggressive investment programs and subsidy programs of the last 20 years, Europe still gets almost two and a half times as much primary energy from natural gas as it does from wind and solar combined. Secondly, is you have to balance your intermittencies, you have storage issues. And what, what has historically been the case with renewables, and we see this everywhere, that there's a big wind and solar presence in the system, is you, you have some sort of dispatchable uh, energy asset that balances those and offsets for the times that the wind isn't blowing or the sun's not shining like you might need it to. In the US, it happens to be natural gas. 
in Europe, it's been a mix of gas and coal and nuclear. And then if you look at China and India, it's basically coal plus renewables. But at the end of the day, you could think of renewables. If you, if you think of them as a hamburger patty, you need a bun to go around that. And the bun is typically either gas or coal or nuclear. And the problem with these in Europe is they've shut down a lot of coal capacity. They've actually shut down in Europe more nuclear uh, generation capacity over the last 10 years than the Japanese did in the wake of the Fukushima disaster. And then now there's the reluctance to invest in gas as a long-term bridge fuel and a reluctance to view gas as the energy transition resource that it really seems to be if you're looking at this from a thermodynamic and an empirical perspective. And when we come back from break, I want to get back on this. But what I'm hearing you say, Gabe, is that so and this report is reflecting they don't want to sign a long-term contract putting in actual pricing. So they know what they're going to pay. So they're going off spot pricing, which is always going to be more. And they're willing to get into bidding wars. We have Russia's president, Putin, and over there with China, they've already announced one pipeline and they're talking about another one. And meanwhile, in your report, it's discussing how infrastructure projects have been falling off, the projects of common interest, which I want to go over that too. In this report, I, I just keep thinking like, why in the world are they not wanting to come into some kind of an agreement that would actually give them energy security that they need? Let's take a quick break. You're listening to an old Patch Radio Show. We'll be right back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. My guests today are Gabe Collins and Stephen Miles, with uh, both with Baker Institute for Public Policy. Gentlemen, before the break, I did say that I believe that energy independence uh, is a matter of national security. Those were my words in the way of, I believe that if you have a solid energy policy, you are, as a country, you're far better off in the way of being able to handle wars and being able to take care of your own citizens. This is my belief and not you guys, but I do strongly believe that a strong energy policy is the way to keep yourself out of war if you're a country. So however we want to word that is my words. And I believe that the United States needs to have even a stronger energy policy here to make sure that we continue to have a lot of energy here. That being said, I want to bring it back to the report that uh, you guys produced. And it's because in it, you know, Gabe, you were mentioning earlier how there have been some things that have ultimately led Europe to somewhat of a problem of what they're in right now. And I don't want to put words into your mouth, but can we go over that now it also in your report discusses how their projects of common interest their, their infrastructure pro, uh, projects, which you mentioned, how those two have been declining. Your report shows it. Can we talk about that as well? Certainly. And there's actually an interesting interrelationship here that'll tie back into some of the things we discussed a few minutes ago. So when you look at the projects of common interest, there's really two different levels you're looking at. And if there's European listeners, I'll, I'll probably get an earful afterwards for saying this, but there's, there's the level that's driven by clear need for a various form of energy, be that electricity, you know, gasoline, diesel fuel, natural gas, and so forth. And then I think what we have seen come in over the last decade or so is there's also a pretty distinct ideological component in the sense that projects that are tied to wind and solar in some way are explicitly and also implicitly favored more than those that may be tied to a fossil fuel that somebody might you know, sitting in Brussels may view as a legacy of the past. The one thing that is, I think, useful maybe is a little bit of counterbalance to that, and, and this brings us back really into the substance of the report, is 
to Stephen's point earlier, we've actually seen very rapid progress. I think in some cases more rapid than we would have expected to ensure that there's infrastructure to bring gas in. The problem is securing the volumes you need at a price that does a better job of underpinning your industrial vitality and your consumer well-being and ultimately your international competitiveness moving forward. And what I think they've done now is if you use the analogy basically of a motor and the fuel pumps that feed it, is we built a motor with many hundreds of horsepower, you know, good eight cylinders and so forth, but then they have a lawnmower size committed fuel line feeding into it that you can get gasoline so you know proverbial metaphorically speaking that you know what the price is but all the balance of that you just have to go scramble for it internationally so you're going to pay a lot more you're going to have the domestic problems that we discussed earlier and then there's an international dimension that i i didn't mention before and that is this affects energy transition efforts all around the world because if you look at places like India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nigeria, and so forth, basically this big swath of populous, rapidly growing countries that in many cases would like to use more natural gas. If they have a choice between coal and natural gas at say $5 or $6 per million BTU, they'll go for the gas every time. But if the gas is $30 a million BTU because it's been bid up as a result of European utilities frantically scrambling for it, then they face a choice, basically either one, energy poverty, or two, coal. And in a lot of those cases, they're going to turn to coal, and there's real long-term consequences with that. Jim? Go ahead. Go ahead, Stephen. So in, in addition to the uh, projects of common interest that Gabe was talking about, you look at something that's called the Three Cs Initiative, Cs, S-E-A-S. That's uh, It's a, a collection of basically Central and Eastern European countries and the goal, which the United States has supported and does support now, is to link these countries up from an energy perspective all the way from the Baltic Sea in the north uh, to the Black Sea in the southeast and the Adriatic Sea in the southwest. And so you're linking up everything from from uh, um, uh, from Poland on through Bulgaria and Romania and all the way down to Greece. And um, by linking these up, these are countries, most of which are landlocked, so they don't have access to LNG, for example. Uh, some of them have access to natural gas really only historically from the east, from Russia. And so the idea is put money in there, link all these up. Uh, the U.S. put $300 million in uh, last, last summer, um, but it's hamstrung in making investments because some of those countries who would be beneficiaries don't want to invest in natural gas projects. So you have this project designed to bring energy security and link up these companies, these countries that have no gas and people don't want to invest the money that we and others are giving them because it's gas. It's It goes back to your question, Kim, of what's really going on. Yeah. So in your report, it says a strategy of, this is Europe, a strategy of outbidding everyone for spot cargo leads to insecure supply, higher and more volatile prices and energy right. transition reversals. So they're not going to get the energy transition. They're going to pay more. It's going to lead to insecurity of energy. And then it also, my point earlier was in your report, this is your report. It's outstanding, by the way, guys. Good job. Refusal to invest in new infrastructures leads to insecure supply, which was what I said when I opened. To me, if you have a lot of energy, you're a strong country. And if you don't, mm, probably don't want to be there. But I want to get back on this report. We have to take a quick break because I want to cover the, their climate change goals, their higher prices. There's just like a lot in this report to unpack. What you're listening to an Oil Patch Radio Show. And we'll be right back. 
And we're back. You're listening to In the Little Patch Radio Show. My guest today is Gabe Collins and Stephen Miles, both with Baker Institute for Public Policy, releasing a new report from Rice University, Baker Institute for Public Policy, titled European uh, Energy at Risk of Overdependence on Unreliable Supply for, of course, their LNG. Gentlemen, before the break, we kind of went through a lot of the report real quick. So I am encouraging our listeners to really go to the website and pull down this report because it's really in-depth and I just can't do it justice for 45 minutes on the radio. But let's switch gears and go down a little bit more into the report, emphasizing renewables over long-term gas supplies will leave European consumers wanting and its industrial part of the country uncompetitive. Tell me what your report reflects on that. Sure. So basically, if you're looking at industrial competitiveness, one of the things you want is you want your energy supplies, you want them stable and you want them affordable. And dependability is certainly woven into that matrix as well. To, to kind of give an example that's maybe closer to home for a lot of the listeners here is you look at the industrial revitalization we've seen resulting from the shale boom here in the United States, where if you know that you're going to consistently have natural gas somewhere between two and five dollars, that actually gives you what one is it makes you very globally competitive and two is it gives you a good planning horizon to work with. If you're in Europe, you don't have any of this right now. I mean, your, your gas cargo today could be ten dollars and two months from now when things get really cold, it could be 50 or 60. It's very hard to work and plan around that. And so you want stability and dependability so that you're industries actually are, are able to plan forward and are able to make the investments and do, do the things that they need to do to be globally competitive. Stephen, can you talk to me a little bit about, so in this report, it's discussing how affordability is the key. And I want to help our listeners understand, maybe you can kind of help us understand when it's not, how much does this weigh on the individual in Europe who is just barely making ends meet. I mean, I, I see your graphs and I can't give it to the listeners, but affordability is the key in here. And it shows mm -hmm. how this is really going to fall on the backs of the poorest of having to maintain this unreliable, unstable inability to secure their energy needs, their LNG needs. And they're not willing to sign on long-term contracts. So I guess in your report, you're also talking about timing and scalability are critical. Can you go a little bit more in depth on what this report is reflecting? What are the people of Europe looking at if their elected officials don't start maybe moving towards more long-term LNG supplies? So, you know, energy costs are always a form of regressive tax because people use energy as it's a, it's a primary um, uh, item of consumption. Uh, middle class people, lower middle class people just have to you know, continue to use energy. Um, it's just a higher higher percentage of their budget uh, than for a very wealthy class. And so these higher expenses hit them disproportionately. Um, and our graphs actually, in which those particular graphs, I think we take, we borrow from the IMF themselves, if my recollection is correct, International Monetary Fund. Uh, and they show that the uh, lower income uh, deciles groups in Europe are suffering the most. Um, Gabe mentioned earlier that you know, we, we calculate well over $100 billion of excess expenditure just in the first 16, 17 months since the war, um, only due to not buying long-term LNG from the U.S. So you can say, well, okay, maybe they just don't know. They didn't know. They didn't foresee the war. They didn't foresee Gazprom cutting back, understandable and all that. But, um, you know, even now, 
even if they recognize now uh, the amount of money that Europe, Europe's policymakers could save for their consumers is substantial because the forward curves for the next couple of years still show that there's a dramatic uh, difference uh, in the cost that the uh, Europe, European uh, countries are requiring their, uh, their residents, their citizens to pay because they're going to rely upon spot cargos to fill this gas Grand Canyon rather than going long term. And Kim, since I've given you these long, lawyerly, you know, multi-page answers, I'll give you a much simpler response to your question on consumer impacts is people may face decisions during the winter of heat versus eat. And that's really- It not says it in your report. Eat. Thank you for saying it. It says, as this process unfolds, the wallets are left far lighter. And some of those with less means are saddled with the brutal decision of heating or eating. Yes. That's pretty- that's pretty telling. And yet um, it seems as though that we are, uh, you know, they're trying to figure out they don't want to sign long-term contracts for their energy uh, liquefied natural gas. Your report it talks a little bit also about, so we know that Europeans love being part of the renewables. They want to be part of the clean, green energy cycle. Great. But this report is kind of reflecting, well, you're also putting yourself in a situation where you're going to pay more for LNG to keep your lights on and keep yourself warm, all while wanting to look at this massive build out of renewables. And yet the gas supplies in your report show they're still far more reliable and cheaper and can build them out faster. So what was the point in this timing and scale are critical? Can we go into that? Certainly. So timing basically means you can't just transition a system overnight. The analogy I would use is if we're going 80 miles an hour down the freeway, there's really two fundamental ways we can stop. One is we can crash into a concrete wall. We dissipate our energy really quickly and we stop, but we may not survive. The other way we can do it is you press your brake pedal, you dissipate that energy over time, and you know you're going to stop, but people are braced for it. You, you're, you're, you're able to slow down in a more rational and, and planned and calculated way. Everybody's better off at the end. When you're transitioning an energy system, it's something that's similar some aspects you're going to do via policy, you know, and we see this with various kinds of subsidies. Other things tend to happen organically. Like if you look at the velocity of, you know, gas renewing its role in the system here in the United States with the shale boom, that's an example of something that was organic that even five years before it, almost nobody foresaw coming. Scale is just the sheer size of modern energy systems where basically the world each day is using the equivalent of hundreds of millions of barrels of oil worth of energy of all types. About 100 million is from oil. There's a lot from coal. There's a lot from gas. There's a fair amount from nuclear. And then there's a decent amount from wind and solar. And one of the ways you're going to meet scale is you take an all of the above approach. One of the risks with the approach we've seen in Europe, and we see echoes of this in the United States too, is there's a temptation among some folks to build what is effectively an energy monoculture centered on wind and solar. 
I think, you know, hear us very clearly on this. Wind and solar have their role. Texas, among other places out in the western part of the state, is very advantaged for those types of resources. But we're talking about a pie here with a lot of different slices, and, and all of them matter, and they have to, they, they basically all fold in together. It's not one source or another. It's not binary. It's all of all of the above. We need, we need a, sil a silver shotgun shell, not a silver bullet. Absolutely. I agree with you. Let's take a quick break. One of your graphs, figure six, says gas is currently an irreplaceable energy system balancer. What you're listening to in the Old Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. Attention small and medium-sized business owners. Are you feeling overwhelmed with back office tasks like payroll, workers' compensation, federal regulations, safety laws, employment standards, and benefits? Don't worry, Unique HR has your back. For over 30 years, our team of qualified professionals has been providing people-centered solutions to help businesses like yours navigate the heavy burden of running a business and managing their workforce. We're the PEO with a pulse, and we are just a phone call away. Call us today at 361-852-6392. Unique HR, the partner you can trust. We're back. You're listening to an oil patch radio show. My guest today is Stephen Mills with the Baker Institute for Public Policy. And Stephen, Gabe had to run for a pressing appointment. And so we will finish off the show um, in talking about a recent report that the Baker Institute released. You helped create the report, did the studies on it, European energy at risk of over dependence on unreliable supply when we when we're specifically talking about LNG. And I want to give you a few minutes because we didn't get to hear from you pertaining to um, Europe. And when I when we went to break, I basically read what figure six in your report shows on a graph that says gas is currently an irreplaceable energy system balancer. Europe is, is really known for wanting to really be part of the, the green, whether it's hydrogen, um, solar, wind. Um, but are they, doesn't seem like they're ready to make this change and what gabe was saying is it's all the above approach is what it probably needs to be absolutely. what are your thoughts absolutely. tim after you hit the nail on the head so it isn't just that that europe isn't ready nobody's ready you know there is no master battery that is going to be able to store solar power and wind power all night when the wind doesn't blow and and when you have it's overcast for a week, I mean, there is no such battery. You talk to, to people, you ask them how their how their uh, EV is being charged overnight, and they say, "Well, I plug it into the wall." And you say, "Well, where does that power come from?" And they say, "Well, it's solar power." I don't know. And you, and you say, "Well, does the sun shine at night?" And they say, "Well, it must be some battery somewhere." No, there is no such battery. The batteries that we have generally last about two to four hours max and are dissipated very quickly. There is no utility scale battery. So, so, and someday there will be. And there's a tremendous amount of capital being thrown into it does not exist today. Right. It won't exist tomorrow. We're not there. One day eventually. Yeah, and it's going to take a rewiring of the whole system to do that. And, and even our European friends uh, who are making great strides and efforts, even they talk about a decade at best. And on hydrogen, uh, our friends in Germany are talking about converting their LNG receiving terminals in 2035 to hydrogen. Okay, well, that's that's 13 years from now. You know, what happens in the meantime? Are you going to, you know, their, their bet on short-term gas, on spot gas, or on renewable, either way, is a bet that all the weather will be warm, all their friends, mm -hmm. all their neighbors will be friendly, <laughs> that Russia will be any less friendly than it is now, apparently, and that uh, and that there won't be any structural interruptions in supply around the world. And as long as you can assume all three of those assumptions are going to be correct for, for the next 
10 to 15 years. Which, Stephen, they're not. Of course they're not. They're not. And look, I'm not, I'm not trying to be critical in Europe. Or anywhere else. Exactly. I'm not trying to be critical, but it seems like the United States wants to follow that path. And I'm like, well, hold on a second there. We're, no, I'm not okay with that. Because in your conclusion and policy recommendations, yeah. you say, given the economic threat caused by the sudden loss of nearly 200 BCM yearly to rush of Russian gas, that was the invasion that nobody saw coming, right? Or and then the fact that you know they're they're not signing long term contracts, so they're going to need to outbid China, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan. Correct. Uh, they're going to pay more. We've already this publicly is said the Asian countries have already publicly said you know uh, we're, we're we are going to buy what we need to buy. So you, you you see a world in which there are two big buyer regional blocks developing: Europe and Asia. Yep. And they have a lot of money, and everybody else is going to fall by the wayside and have to grab grab a life jacket along the way. Oh, and by the way, as we do this show, you know, we have right now Putin, along with uh, one head of Russia's Gazprom, heading to China. They've already announced one pipeline to fulfill China, and they're going to announce another one potentially um, here down the road. Now, this this visit is not going to be official. They're just going, but obviously they're going down there to speak about trying to supply LNG to China. And Europe is standing by not wanting to sign any long-term contracts to ensure that they know what price they're paying for liquefied natural gas. <laughs> so they're not buying spot price. So in closing, what is the policy recommendation for Europe? What do they need to do to secure their energy security? And that y'all are saying in this report, it must be prioritized. So talk to me about what do they need to do to secure and, their energy security? Clear, it's not that they're not buying signing any long-term contracts. They are signing a few, and there are big headlines on them. But statistically, it's a drop in the in that grand canyon, right? So uh, what they need to do is not that different from what we need to do in some respects. You mentioned infrastructure, and we both need infrastructure. Um, we need a different kind of infrastructure in this country. Uh, it's not the focus of this report, but we need to be focusing on our our pipeline infrastructure so we can get our natural gas and other fuels to where they can be used, where they can be exported. Um, and in Europe, they need to be focusing on a all the above strategy, uh, rather than a you know some of the above or we'll wink that we won't you know we'll pretend we're not you know going to use some of the uh, some of the above and then they will. For example, they are using Russian LNG even though they're saying they they're not using Russian natural gas. So you know can we all just be honest with each other about what's going on there? Um, but so they need a diversity of supply. They need a, a policy that actually addresses how they're going to afford. These fuels, if they're going to be paying a lot of money for spot natural gas rather than long-term contracts, from the U.S. I mean, we're not the only ones, but ours are tied to Henry Hub, which is just a whole lot lower than than the oil-linked prices that are available elsewhere. Um, so, um, you know, that's one set of recommendations. Um, I think on uh, or what we say in here as well is that if you're going to think about climate, um, climate is a go a global issue, not a local issue. A carbon carbon Correct. is global, and so it's it's fine and great and, and applaud with sort of one hand that you're uh that europe is uh trying to build out renewables rather than um uh you know natural gas and lng i suppose to to back that up but in doing so in saying we will outbid the world for these molecules that we're going to buy spot they are literally pushing countries like pakistan and bangladesh and others who have publicly announced that they are turning away from their investments in lng their tankers their floating receiving terminals to go back to reopening coal plants because they can't afford to compete with Europe on spot purchases for LNG. Pakistan has since bought one or two cargoes, but it's de minimis, it's tiny. Pakistan made this announcement in uh, earlier this year. So, um, and, and because Europe is buying spot, it isn't allowing 
developers like US LNG developers to have the certainty to go out and get financing to build new long-term projects. So prices are going up, but we're, we don't have the certainty to get capital to build additional projects here. So you have, again, two big regional buyers, Asia and Europe, competing with each other. Everybody else is left looking for a life jacket. Um, we need to build more projects. The U.S. is the place that has the gas. For the most part, we have the infrastructure. We have the will uh, to build them, to finance them. We have the capital. Um, it looks like, I mean, if you look at a lot of the major reports that have been produced, international reports, we're gonna, the world's going to need the gas to back up uh, renewables and to reduce carbon. Um, and uh, we really just need uh, our friends across the pond to help us raise capital by supporting us with long-term contracts and um, lower prices for their citizens at the same time. Well, in closing, Stephen, I want to read the last part of your energy security must be prioritized because it says it perfectly for Europe. Um, it says, besides needing to deal with severe weather uh, events and industrial competition, Europe is up against a harsh geopolitical backdrop. While Russia squeezes the content through energy cutoffs and active warfare, China is working to supplement German and other European concerns at the pinnacle of precision manufacturing with its state-owned enterprises. The impact of Europe's ongoing energy crunch are a here and now certainty as Russia's weaponizing weaponization of gas in the run-up of its 2022 invasion of Ukraine strongly suggests robustly tending to energy security is an essential prerequisite for warding off other types of serious security risk. Energy security is national security and the action requires long lead times and putting off decisions in hopes of warmer winter technology, unicorns and peaceful adversaries is not a strategy. That says it all. And for me, what I look and see is if we're pushing other countries to use coal, then how did we get ahead when we're talking about climate change? And what you said, we're one global planet, and this is not a solution because one country is green and they get, woo, you are the green country while another country is burning coal. It's just not a solution for talking about climate change, which is why I sit here and talk on the radio, because it just doesn't make sense to most of us who really understand. we got to figure out another solution. Stephen, thank you for being a guest on today's show in the Oil Patch Radio Show. We look forward to seeing another more reports that are coming out from the Baker Institute and continuing to have you back on the show. Yeah, um, thank you on behalf of myself and Gabe.